Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding area. He was teaching in their synagogues and being honored by everyone. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to tell them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They all spoke well of him and were impressed by the words of grace that came from his mouth. And they kept saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? He told them, Certainly you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown everything we heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, Amen, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But truly, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was healed except Nahum and the Syrian. All those who were in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the town. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the middle of them and went on his way. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who always elicits passionate reactions in everyone, in every one of us. Here's a riddle for you. What do the Word of God and Newton's third law of motion have in common? If you can remember all the way back to your high school science classes and learning the third law of motion. They both generate equal and opposite reactions. That's what Newton's law is about. And today we're going to learn that the Word of God also produces equal and opposite reactions. And that's, that's not just my opinion. Jesus told his disciples, whoever isn't for us is against us. And the point being, there is no middle ground. You can't be neutral when it comes to the law and the gospel, the word of God, when it is preached and you hear it. You can't sit on the fence. There's no neutrality when it comes to the word of God. The word of God doesn't just sit here like dead letters on a page. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It will have an impact on us. It will lead to a passionate reaction, either receiving it with joy or rejecting it with anger and hatred. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know if I agree with that, because I've heard a number of sermons. I've read the Bible myself. I've read plenty of devotions, and And I don't remember really having any kind of a a real, much less really passionate reaction to 
to any of that. I was never really moved to, to really become angry or, or really become sad or, or really become joyful. That's a problem. That's a problem. That describes apathy towards the Word of God when it has no impact on our hearts and our minds. There are a few things that the Lord hates more than apathy. Remember, he wrote to the Christians in Laodicea, because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Apathy for Christians is inexcusable. It's sinful when we hear the Word of God, we hear the law and the Gospel properly proclaimed, and it has no impact on us. It goes in one ear and out the other. What could possibly be to blame for apathy regarding the reception of the Word of God? Well, given that it is a word, by definition, it has to be spoken, communicated from one person to another, to, from one person's lips to another person's ears. So I think we can identify three possible areas that are to blame for apathy regarding the Word of God. It could be the message itself, that the message really has no power. It could be in the speaker, or it could be in the hearer, right? Those are the only three areas that that make sense, that are possible. Well, right away we can scratch the message off that list, right? The message is not to blame. As the Lord promises in Isaiah, it will accomplish whatever I please, and it will succeed in the purpose for which I sent it. God's word will always work. Wherever it is preached and wherever it is heard, we have the Lord's own word on it. So what could be to blame then? Could we as hearers be to blame for the fact that we don't really have a passionate reaction when we hear the word of God, the law and the gospel, that, that we're apathetic toward the revelation that God has given us in his word? Maybe the, the noise out there in the world has, has deafened our ears to the, the small voice of God here in his word. This is so much different, this scene here at church, than, than everything else we've, we face out in the world. Just think of how much noise there is. Think of how entertainment, movies, TV shows, even sports, they're all engineered for passive listening. So that you sit down, you turn your mind off, and you just sit there and you're passively entertained and amused. That is not how we are to receive the Word of God. The Word of God requires active listening. This is not background noise. This is not turning on a music station as you're doing the dishes. This is, if I was going to compare it to something, this is like being in the doctor's office and the doctor is coming to you with a report of whether you will live or die. That is how vital this is. Another problem could be called itching ear syndrome. That oftentimes the Word of God doesn't tell us what we want to hear. And all we really want to hear is what we want to hear. We want to hear things that are relevant. We want wonderful programs and powerful moving music. We want the Word of God to solve all the little problems in our lives and make our lives better, our marriages happier, our families healthier. And the Word of God doesn't scratch that itch. The Word of God tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. There's also a problem with our attention span. I was reading a a study from a few years ago that said uh, the average human attention span has receded from 15 seconds to 8 seconds, which is less than that of a goldfish. And 
you have to kind of admit that's true, right? With our phones constantly dinging with news alerts and tweets and and weather alerts and all the things that are happening and and social media, the, the movies, the videos that are no more than 15 or 20 seconds long, it's all shortened our attention span so that we can't focus anymore. We can't pay attention for more than a few seconds. We can't listen and meditate and contemplate. Because I'm sorry, this is not a 144-letter tweet. The Word of God is not simple enough to be spelled out in a bumper sticker or a slogan or a Facebook meme. And the sad truth is that many Christians, because they don't take the time to meditate and read and listen and pray, is that they have a shamefully shallow faith that's not based on anything more than theological tidbits or bumper stickers or Facebook memes. Now, the hearers aren't the only ones that should get the blame for an apathetic reception of the word. Preachers definitely can take their share of the blame as well. And you might be thinking, yeah, I really have a hard time listening when a preacher is boring, or when he's monotone, or when he goes on for too long, or when he's too short. And that may be a problem. But wherever the gospel is preached, no matter who it's preached by, as long as the word is there, no matter how boring you may think it is, no matter how you may not like the style or think it's too long, as long as the gospel is proclaimed, the word of God is is there. The Holy Spirit is working. That's not really the problem with preachers is that they're boring or too long-winded. The problem is when preachers lose their faith in the power of the Word. And they begin to rely on other things, other tools, on their own ingenuity, on their own likability, on their own persuasiveness to try to do things to people or for people that, that only the Word of God can do. It happens when preachers, instead of using the Bible as the means of grace that it is, that that means through which God wants to convey to us His forgiveness, they start to use it as a means to an end. It may sound like this. You want to start a community service organization or have a community service project. There's a Bible verse for that. You want to get people to open up their wallets and, and give more in the offering. All you have to do is just pick up this big leather Bible and start beating them over the head with the Bible passages that talk about generosity to the Lord. You want to pick on an enemy, a social or political enemy. You know as well as I do that Scripture is cited on on virtually both sides of, of almost every political and social issue that's out there. Those are not the reasons God gave us His Word, though. God gave us His Word to expose our sinfulness and to heal us with the forgiveness that only Jesus has to offer. Sadly, I think, and I will confess, I am guilty of this, or have been guilty of this at some times. I think we all have, even, even as Lutherans who, who stand firm on that Reformation motto of sola scriptura, Scripture alone. I think we sometimes forget where the Word is supposed to work when it is preached in this building. And sometimes we think it's supposed to work out there. That when the word is preached in here, it is supposed to change the world out there and the people out there. And, and I know as a pastor, I, I've, I've done that sometimes, where, where you shake your fist at all the evil you see in the world. But that's not where the word is supposed to work when it is being preached in here. It's to work on you. It's to work on me. It's to work on our hearts. It'd be really stupid 
for us to sit here for an hour listening to the Word of God and think, yep, that's going to change the world. It'd be about as stupid as you taking a Tylenol and expecting it to cure someone else's headache. That's not how it works. The Word of God being proclaimed in here is for us, to change us, not to change the world out there. There's plenty of blame to go around, right, regarding apathy to the Word of God. The, the hearer may not be listening well enough. The preacher may not be conveying it clearly enough or for, for the wrong reasons. Martin Luther warned his generation that the gospel was like a passing rain shower, that it will appear over one area, it will saturate the soil there, but eventually the soil gets so saturated that the water begins to run off and the, the storm cloud of the gospel moves on. He was saying that about Europe. And in large part, that is true of Europe today, that the gospel shower has passed on from Europe. Many of you have been to Europe. You've seen the the magnificent cathedrals there that are empty, that are no more than museums today. I think some people would say that the rain shower of the gospel is passing out of our own country in our generation. And that may be true. The number of people who have no identification with no religion or no spirituality is about half the population now. But while we have the word, while that rain shower of the gospel is still still staying over risen Savior Lutheran Church, let's not take it for granted and let's not be apathetic toward its message. Because when the word of God is proclaimed, it does things. It accomplishes things. It will cut you down. It will show you your sins. It will drop you to your knees in repentance and make you mourn like those people at the time of Nehemiah. But then it will raise you up. Then it will raise you up with the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ. The law and the gospel, they they never lack a reaction. The law and the gospel work together. They are God's tools for producing in us what God wants to see, that is, repentance and faith. And it did that already at the time of Nehemiah, right? We read in our first lesson how the people had gathered outside the water gate, and it was interesting, it was the people, not not Ezra the priest, who, who demanded that Ezra read the law to them. The people demanded, we want to hear the word of God, and when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. And not only that, they stood outside. They stood Men, women, and children, they stood for six straight hours from early morning to noon listening. No air conditioning, no heating, no roof over their heads, no comfy chairs to sit in. They stood and they listened. And when they heard the law, they were cut to the heart and repented and wept. And when they heard the gospel, they rejoiced and they had a celebration. It was a holy day that day in Jerusalem because of the word of God. It was also a holy day in Nazareth when Jesus returned. When the carpenter's son came back as the the famous miracle-working rabbi to preach in his hometown synagogue. The attendant handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and Jesus turned to Isaiah 61, where he read these words. The scroll of the, the, the... Excuse me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. 
And as was the tradition in the synagogues in those days, when you read the Word of God, you were standing. When you taught or, or preached a sermon, you would sit down. So Jesus sat down. I imagine that you would have been able to hear a pin drop. They were excited to hear what was he going to say. See, the people of Israel had wondered for centuries, who is this anointed one? Who is this anointed one that the Lord is going to send to save us? Was it Isaiah himself? Was it John the Baptist? Was it someone else? Well, Jesus is here to clear up the mystery. He says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. You know what he's saying there, right? It's me. I'm the fulfillment of the Scripture. I am the anointed one that the Lord has sent to save you from your sins, to release you from your captivity. And the people accepted it. They received it well. We're told, at first at least, they, spoke, they all spoke well of him and were impressed by the words of grace that came from his mouth. Ah, but where the Gospels proclaimed, the devil, devil is not far behind. The devil elbowed his way into their hearts and their minds, and elevated their reason over the word of God. They began to talk amongst themselves, isn't this Joseph's son? They began to remember, yeah, he's the kid who played with our kids in the streets a few decades ago. Yeah, I remember I went to him to have my table repaired in his father's carpentry shop. Where was this guy for 30 years anyway? He was off hanging out with that other weird renegade cousin of his named John. Who does that guy think he is now coming back to our hometown and telling us that he's the anointed one, that he's the Savior? All right, Jesus, go ahead. You prove it. Prove it. We've heard that you did miracles in Capernaum and other places in Galilee. Prove it. Do a miracle and we'll believe your message. If not, get out of here. Of course, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus knew that they didn't believe him, that they were going to demand a miracle. So he said to them, this is what you're thinking. Amen, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He reminded them of some shameful stories from Israel's past, that there were lots of widows around in Elijah's time, but that the Lord sent Elijah to a widow outside of Israel, a non-Jew, not a member of God's chosen people, to help her out. He reminded them that there were a lot of lepers in Elisha's time in Israel, but that the Lord sent Elisha not to an Israelite, not to a Jew, but to Naaman, the Syrian. And so Jesus is really, he's spelling out a fact here, and he's also sending them a warning. The fact is, faith does not come from seeing miracles. Faith comes from hearing the message. Faith doesn't come from seeing miracles. Faith comes from hearing the message. And then the warning, the very clear warning that these people understood was, if you reject the gospel message now, I will take it away from you like a passing rain shower, and I will give it to people who will receive it. And this is galling for these Israelites to hear because they, were, they knew they were God's chosen people. And, and the, the not-so-veiled threat of Jesus is, if you reject the message now, if you reject me as your Savior now, I'm going to take the gospel away from my chosen people and give it to the Gentiles, those filthy, unclean, pagan Gentiles, people like us. Well, that, that was enough for them. They didn't want to hear anymore. They weren't filled with faith. They were filled with rage. They dragged Jesus out of the city and tried to throw him off of a cliff. 
You see, the Word of God does not leave a neutral reaction. You cannot sit on the fence. You will either accept it with joy or you will reject it with anger and try to push it out of your life. Of course, Jesus slipped away because it wasn't time for him to die. But there would come another time, not so many months later, when they would again drag him outside of the city to a hill. Not to throw him off of it, but to nail him to a tree. Of course, they could only do it that time because Jesus willingly submitted to it. He was obedient to his Father's plan, even to the point of death on the cross. It was Jesus' death that took away the sins of the world, and even all of our sins of apathy, and not really listening to the Word of God, and not really caring for what it says to us. Isn't it amazing, the irrationality of unbelief? What was Jesus' message that day in Nazareth? I have come to save you from your sins. And how did the people respond? We want you dead. It just doesn't make any sense. Today is not about those people in Nehemiah's time, though, or Jesus' childhood friends either. It's about you and it's about me. Which people are we more like? Those people in Jerusalem who gladly heard the word of God and received it, or the people in Nazareth who wanted to push it out of their lives once and for all? Aren't we both? Aren't we often torn when it comes to hearing the Word of God or torn when it comes to getting up in the morning and coming to church? That there's part of us that wants nothing to do with it. And there's also part of us that wants nothing more than to hear the Word of God. You see, inside each of us lives a sinful nature, also called the old Adam. The old Adam wants nothing to do with the Gospel. The old Adam wants nothing to do with hearing the Word of God. The old Adam wants nothing to do with church. It's the old Adam that makes it so difficult to get up on a a frigid January morning and crawl out of your warm bed and get in your car and drive here to church. It's the old Adam in you that looks for any excuse to get out of worship, whether it be a little bit of snow or too cold or stayed up too late watching the Packer game. The old Adam doesn't want you to be here because you know what the old Adam knows? That when the old Adam is confronted with the law and the gospel here, the old Adam is put to death. When you confess your sins and receive forgiveness, the old Adam loses his control over your will and your mind and your heart. And he doesn't want that. But there's also another part of you, the new man. The new man that wants to be here. That's the real you. That's the part of you that was reborn in holy baptism that is fed with the word that That part of you that that still gets a shiver up your spine every time you hear that God loved you. Not just the world. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. When that still sends a thrill up your spine, that's the new man in you. The new man who who wouldn't let anything get in the way. The new man who who would gladly stand outside for six hours under the blazing sun to hear this precious message, much less drive through a little bit of snow and cold and sit on a nice padded chair in a climate-controlled sanctuary. That's the real you. But that real you has to continually, day after day and week after week, drag that old Adam here so that the Lord can put him to death once again. So you get what that means then, right, for our lives? It means war. It means every day is a war between our sinful nature and the new man. 
that every day is going to be a battle where the old Adam says, don't you dare open that Bible or that devotion book. Don't you dare teach your children about Jesus. Every week is going to be a struggle. It's never easy to wake up here and come to church, is it? There's always that battle going on inside. It's going to be a lifelong struggle that won't be ended until the Lord kills the sinful nature once and for all when we die and are raised again. But it's worth the fight. Because nowhere else will you hear a message like this that Jesus has to proclaim. That He is the Anointed One. That He has come to set you free from your bondage to sin, death, and the devil. That He has come to win the victory for you. We come here, first of all, in repentance to put our sinful nature, our old Adam, to death. Once again, in repentance and absolution. But then we get to rejoice. Like those people in Nehemiah's day outside the water gate. We rejoice. Not because we've overcome the sinful nature. I don't think any of us in here would be arrogant enough to say, oh, that sinful nature doesn't bother me anymore. He doesn't have any power in my life. We rejoice because Jesus has won the victory that we can't. Because Jesus has overcome our sinful nature for us. Because we were the, the captives We were the oppressed. We were the blind people that Isaiah was referring to. And Jesus is the anointed one who has come to set us free so that your sins, even your sins of apathy, are forgiven. You stand justified before God. The Lord has reserved a place for you in his eternal mansion in heaven. That's the gospel. That's the main message that the word of God has to proclaim to us. Now, I don't know how you're going to react to that. I can't see into your hearts. It may make you mad or glad. You may want to hear more, or you may be thinking, would you just shut up already? But it will have a reaction because the Word of God always has reactions. It always leads to passionate reactions, either joyful reception or angry rejection. I don't know how you will respond, but what I do know is that today... For this hour here at Risen Savior, this is a holy day because it has been made holy by the Word of God, which has now once again been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen.